Erev Tov, everyone. Welcome again to this special space that Dan and I have created over the last few months. It's such an honor to be with all of you. Thank you for joining us. You know, Dan and I created this space to be a unique offering amongst the Jewish responses to the pandemic, a blending of the spiritual and the intellectual to create to create a space for moving reflection and uplifting fellowship during these unprecedented times, and we hope well, well beyond. The decision to invite a guest each week is our way of both honoring the rich and varied wisdom that lives in the world, and also of modeling the collaboration that we believe the Jewish world is calling for as we tentatively step into our new normal. And our guests also remind us that part of conveying inspiration, whether through teachings or through melodies, is mastered through the art of listening. That sharing happens not just through playing or speaking, but also through pausing and hearing. I'm mindful that in these fragile days of continued protest and outrage, on this day that George Floyd was buried, that a core Jewish mandate is to listen. And to that end, next Tuesday, we'll listen to the insights and guidance of Kari Lazar-White of Brosis in Harlem, an organization that mentors youth in minority communities. And tonight, in a little while, we'll learn from Rabbi Ariel Lekach Rosenberg, who's providing Jewish leadership and allyship on the front lines in Minneapolis. In classic Jewish fashion, our listening will be infused with our own speaking, our quiet will be permeated with our own questions. After all, we are a people who find purpose in paradox, because therein, Rav Soloveitchik taught, we find holiness, not in the neat resolutions to life's complexities, but deep within them. In 1963, 100 years after the Emancipation Declaration, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel declared, it's time for the white man to strive for self-emancipation, to set himself free of bigotry, to stop being a slave to wholesale contempt, a passive recipient of slander. In the wake of yet another racially-fueled fatal attack on a black man, the white American community and the white Jewish community has reacted with a renewed commitment to cheshbon hanefesh, a reckoning of our own souls an examination of our own racial bias, cultural indifference, and moral laziness. On the other hand, in one of the pieces that I read in the last few days, in the last few days a piece shared with me by Nancy Greenblatt, Ijuoma Oluo, a Seattle-based writer and internet yeller, penned, 
if your anti-racism work prioritizes the growth and enlightenment of white America over the dignity and humanity of people of color, it's not anti-racism work. It's white supremacy. Those are challenging words. Where do we locate ourselves in our own shuva between the focus of urgent self-improvement and the immediate needs of those who continue to suffer? Consider the Sufi poet Rumi's penetrating words. Yesterday I was clever, so I wanted to change the world. Today I'm wise, so I've begun to change myself. But we know it's never a choice between yesterday and today. Jewish time isn't linear in that way. We live in a continuous rhythm of yesterday and today, even as we always progress towards tomorrow. Ours is an embrace of time that's not either or, but both and. Ours is an embrace of redemption that's neither individual nor communal, but both and. I believe the Jewish mandate of this moment is expansive enough to encompass both justice and peace, to encourage outrage and discourage violence, to advocate for radical police reform and to nurture productive relationships with law enforcement, to work on ourselves and to work on the world. I'm reminded of this every single day in my prayers at the end of the Amidah. When I recite as we do the Sim Shalom prayer, followed by the more private ending of the Amidah in the prayer of the Elohai Nitzor. In Sim Shalom, we pray for communal and world peace, for a global understanding, compassion, and respect to permeate the entire earth. And then we follow that with a more inward-focused ending of the Amidah, Elohai Nitzor Lushoni Meira Usfatai Midaber Mirma. God, keep my tongue from evil and my lips from speaking deceit. And to those that curse me, let my soul be silent and let my soul be humble like the dust before all. Open my heart to your Torah and let my soul pursue your mitzvot. When I think about the connection between the Sim Shalom prayer and the Elohai Nitzor, I realize that it would be spiritually illogical and terribly brazen to think that we can pray for a peace that would encompass the whole world without simultaneously working on our own abilities and responsibilities to realize those dreams and to fulfill those goals, to make good on those prayers. It begins with us, with each and every single one of us. Martin Buber said it this way, true unity cannot be found. It can only be created. One who creates it realizes the unity of the world in the unity of their soul. Thus beforehand, they must live through the tension of the world in their soul as their own soul's tension. Our weekly gathering is a place to unfold, to contemplate, and to begin to heal the tensions within our souls so that we can separately and together find our way to true unity within ourselves and throughout the world.
We are so honored and blessed to welcome Rabbi Ariel Lekach Rosenberg tonight, whose distinctive voice adds depth, adds beauty, adds tenderness to the chorus of righteous outrage all around us these days. Ariel joined us for Shavuot a few weeks ago, offering together with Dan and me a weave of silence and sound as we made our way to Sinai together. Tonight she brings her insights as a rabbi serving on the front lines in Minneapolis, generating leadership for both the Jewish community and the broader community struggling to make sense of this moment, forging pathways through and beyond it to a changed world, to a world, please God, finally willing to be changed. May it be. It's such a joy to be with you tonight. It's been, I think, a balm, certainly on my soul, these days of pandemic and now these days of uprising to be in such sweet and abiding relationship with colleagues across the country. And Dini, it's as a, a weekly dialer inner to your program, it is just really a joy to be in this company and to see so many faces of, of New York beloveds here. Hello. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. So I want to dedicate this, this conversation to the memory of George Floyd, who was murdered two weeks and a day ago, and to Tony McDade, who was murdered on May 27th, and Breonna Taylor, who was murdered in her home on March 13th, and the four people who have been killed by police in the month of June, David Mikati, Jorge Gomez, Sean Monterosa, and Eric Salgado, all in incidents related to George Floyd protests. Um, I'm holding in my heart the memory of these people and their families, and just imagining as poet Yehuda Amichai wrote, the, just the concentric circles of each of these murders, each of these deaths. I'm actually in Oregon right now. I drove to Portland, Oregon um, to see my parents a week and a half before George Floyd, George Floyd was murdered, and so have been in this soul's limbo my body has been in, in Oregon and my soul and my, my heart have been on the streets of Minneapolis um, in this sort of paradoxical way that our pandemic has made, has made possible. So I'm grateful to be able to bring stories and perspectives from the uprising in Minneapolis while also in profound humility for the fact that um, while supporting congregants and neighbors on the streets, my body has been very much on the West Coast. And so I just wanted to share a little bit about the experiences uh, that have been that have been held by by people in the Twin Cities. And I know that the uprising in Minnesota has carried sparks across the country uh, that black people, that people of color, that youth, queer and trans people have been rising and saying no more. We need a change. And it's been a profound learning experience as a cis woman, as a white woman, as a Jew, to be as a middle class woman, to be learning and learning quickly about the needs of this moment. Um, we, the uprising was in full, full force on Shavuot and uh, white supremacists were burning black businesses in North Minneapolis as we were singing beautiful songs on, on Zoom. And friends and congregants and neighbors were in the streets I was imagining the, the imagery from, from Sinai, ro'im et ha'kolot, right, that the, the people of Israel could see the thunder, and I really imagined that happening also on the streets of Minneapolis that night, that the outcry of the people was made manifest and material, that thunder was visible, the voices were visible, the revelation came to the foot of the mountain. And I've really been um, reflecting in these weeks since what do we need to be learning in these days? Uh, what, is the, what is the Torah that we're reaching towards? Um, and so I just want to offer about, the, the, as, we, as we grasp towards Torah, right, as we, as we wander about what does it mean to be wandering in this moment in the wilderness? Midrash suggests that Midbar is closely associ associated with issues of dibur, associated with language, with speech, Ein midbar ela dibur, declare our rabbis, wilderness is nothing but speech, is only speech. And they play with the roots of these two terms and they pluck speech out of the desert. And certainly, as I reflect with my community in Minneapolis, we are using speech to try to make sense of a legacy of violence 
and of structures of inequality in our city. We are using our words as bridges to each other, white Jews reaching to Jews of color, Jews of color reaching to Jews, neighbors, black and brown neighbors reaching to each other, trying to make sense of this moment and to find our way through it. Language can also be used as a barrier. We see in the book of Bamidbar that the Israelites use language to create walls between each other, to create walls between themselves and God, between themselves and Mo Moshe. And I have also witnessed questions and language be used as a way of undermining trust, of putting obstacles between each other and the, the work that so desperately needs to be done. And I was amazed on Sunday to bear witness to nine courageous city council people in Minneapolis standing on a stage with activists from Black Visions Collective and Reclaim the Block in the heart of Minneapolis saying enough with small change, with incremental change. What is needed in our community is a reimagination of what safety looks like, a reimagination of how it is that we are accountable to one another, how it is that we keep each other safe, and that they committed our city to a year-long process of reimagining safety, reimagining policing with a commitment towards transformation, uh, dedicating our speech, our sharing, to a new way of being with one another. And so as I've been talking to my congregants, as I've been listening and bearing witness especially to the work of our high school students who have been on the streets every night learning together, sitting at the, uh, at the site of where George Floyd was murdered a, a mile and a half away from my synagogue, meeting, new, meeting their neighbors. Um, as I've been listening to my, my congregants, I'm noticing they're living in a new world. This space of encounter, this space where language builds these tenuous bridges between our hearts, is actually leading my congregants to new ways of imagining, following always the leadership of black activists and black neighbors and people of color. And so it's been a tremendous and humbling moment of learning, specifically for, for white people in the Twin Cities and for white people in my community, just learning what it means to be allies and accomplices in this profound work of social transformation. Ariel, can I ask you a few questions? Would you be? Please. I'd love to hear a little from you about where it is in our tradition that you draw strength or inspiration to provide the leadership you do to your community. Like what's, what's nourishing you? What's giving, what's feeding you Torah that you feel is moving through you and out towards others? When the pandemic began, uh, I started with a friend of mine in Philadelphia, uh, a Hallel practice on Zoom, where uh, our shul in Philadelphia and Shir Tikva in Minneapolis started davening Hallel together on Rosh Chodesh and on holidays. And I've been deriving incredible inspiration and nourishment from those psalms, the ways in which Hallel actually teaches our hearts to grow big enough to hold awe and terror and sadness and joy that Hallel teaches us that we don't choose between those experiences, but that actually our hearts need to grow big enough to hold all of it at the same time, that we don't seek to reduce our human experience into a simple narrative of I was sad and now I'm joyful, or I was joyful once and I yearn for it again, but rather we can hold it all that our hearts and our communities and our, our heritage is big enough to hold it. And certainly as I've been rushing to catch up with the needs of the moment, I'm drawing on that, on that awareness that actually I don't, my, my grief and my terror for what's to come and my sadness for the murder of my neighbor George Floyd does not actually displace my joy and my inspiration for what is coming through this uprising and what is emerging as neighbors work to clean up each other's businesses and protect each other's homes and show up for each other in the in the minutia of the day-to-day. -day. So such a beautiful 
beautiful reflection of um, a part of our tradition that I think many people struggle with. Um, when we are invited by the tradition to offer words of blessing, even in the midst of such deep, such deep um, pain. Um, and the imagery that you shared with us of your, of your youngsters and your community going out and sitting with neighbors who are new friends and, and um, new fellow seekers and is, is so encouraging and so hopeful um, as we see the next generation start taking responsibility for things that we ought to have taken responsibility for long ago. Um, so you've given us ideas of what gives you hope. What gives you pause? What, what scared me the most over these last two weeks was the presence of white supremacists on the street of my city. And the stories that congregants and friends were telling of what it felt like to be up all night in their, in their doorstep watching unmarked trucks drive down their streets. And the, this potent mix of, of terror and agency, of claiming agency. Uh, but I, what, what gives me pause is, is the recognition of what, of what we're confronting, the recognition of even as we root deep in our spiritual tradition and as, even as we build, may it be abiding connections with neighbors across our cities and across our country and the world, that we have some serious reckoning to do with the legacy of white supremacy and the presence of white nationalism in our country. And that that is, I will daven through it because that's what's gonna give me strength, right? And I'm going to dig into the tradition for insight and for nourishment. And the work is so big. And so I'm grateful to not be alone in it. I'm grateful to have tremendous teachers and guides through it, but um, I, I take that very seriously in this moment. It's a beautiful parallel to what you shared before about Hallel. Mm. And you speak to the paradox, as I hinted at earlier, one of the most enduring lessons that I learned in my studies of Rav Soloveitchik, of where it is that we truly find Kedusha, where we find holiness, right? Not in the, the imposition of resolution and the smoothening out of the jagged edges of what we try to hold together, but actually by being able to hold that all together in one singular embrace. And your image of Hallel sort of being unable to suppress your your feeling of gratitude even in a moment of such of such loss is sort of paralleled in what you just shared, that how all the hopefulness of this moment cannot eclipse the the terrifying nature of what we're up against and uh, you've sort of taught that lesson also of that paradox and I, I thank you for that is there um, is there anything else that you think we should know not being where you are and not interacting perhaps at that level of, of immediacy in your where it where it began this time around is there anything else that you think that we should know carry with us Yes, a, a beloved congregant um, and now a, a chavruta of mine, Enzi Tanner, a black Jew in Minneapolis, uh, taught me two weeks ago, right, which is not a new lesson, but one I think that I want to share with, with all of us and encourage you to pass to, pass to your, your beloveds as well, is that what grounds us in this work, in this moment, is the need to embody belief of black people, that when we come to the questions of how do we how do we respond to the needs of these moments? We need to listen as white people to the experiences and the analysis of our black neighbors and believe them before coming in with questions, before answering with ideas, hear the profundity and the truth of their experiences and from that place of encounter, move into relationship. 
And that has been a really important piece of Torah that I've been carrying in these weeks of challenge and of encounter. It's just the need in this moment of heightened awareness, of heightened action and tension to commit to believing black people. And I, and I wanna sort of nest that truth in, in a piece of Talmud that I love from Eruvim back to the image of the Midbar. One who makes themselves like a wilderness receives Torah as a gift. And I think that in this moment of the making and unmaking of our reality, the making and unmaking of power in this country, I love to imagine our own curiosities and consciousness as Midbar, right? That Midbar without structures built, without boundaries, pre-created, that actually we get to wander in our own creative midbar, allowing ourselves to come untethered from habits and harmful myths, coming ready and open to the learning and the possibilities of this moment. Amen. Amen. It's beautiful. Beautiful. I'm going to invite you to join Dunn for a few moments and teach us through your passion and your spirit and your gift of your voice as well.
So beautiful, Ariel. Thank you so much. Done. Thank you, Ariel. Yeah, I. I uh, Ariel and I have known each other about five years now. Been uh, very close now for a while, and um, I miss you. Um, but uh, it's good to know uh, you're doing really important work, and uh, you're with good people. And um, and it's also great to be connected in this way. And I'm grateful for Dini, grateful to Dini, who is uh, opening opening the the doors of this of these sessions to uh, friends of hers and friends of mine, and uh, bringing people together in these beautiful ways. And that uh, it's so wonderful to hear to hear someone who's uh, you know your Torah is is very powerful and. Uh, and your singing is just as powerful. It's all, it's all one and the same, and that's a beautiful thing. And, uh, I'm grateful to be a friend. So thanks oh, for being here. Thank you. It, Dan, you are a gift. <laughs> just a true gift, and it has been so inspiring the ways that, that you and Dini, the way the two of you have been opening this container wider and wider and just letting letting the Torah be there. So thank you so much for, for this space, for this invitation, and for this friendship. It's, it's medicine in this time. Thank you, Ariel. Thank you for, for being with us. I'm reading an extraordinary book called uh, A Paragon by Colin McCann. It's uh, named after a geometric shape that has an infinite number of sides. The book is about two fathers, one Israeli, Jewish, one Palestinian, both of whom lost daughters in the violence of the conflict between our peoples. There is a line that I read over Shabbat that I can't, I can't stop thinking about. The line is this, if you divide death by life, you will find a circle. If you divide death by life, you will find a circle. This line has been circulating in my mind and in my heart for days. It might be that it suggests the instinctive coming together that death unleashes as Jewish tradition encourages in the wake of someone dying, as Americans have come together in the wake of George Floyd's death, the deaths of so many, too many others. But it might go even deeper. The Jewish mystical tradition holds that before our world was created, there, were a there was a series of creations or universes well before our own, each with its own unique characteristics, each with its own unique energy. And the dominant trait of the world that preceded our world was that conceptually it was conceived to be circular, unlike our own world, which is understood to be linear. And we in our linear world, we wrestle with, we are endangered by inequalities, by hierarchies, by oppression, by power unchecked. But the circular world was built on equity, on harmony, and on balance. So the circle represents our collective past, but it also signals everything that we yearn for, 
and a better future. And when ideas and movements, when people come together and stress the qualities of the circular world, tapping into this deep human desire to heal the reality that we find ourselves in now by returning to our roots, to the essence, to the core, to the fundamentals of what it means to be human. Sadly for us, the only way to bring this return, this healing, is by finding our way through our deeply flawed, linear, hierarchical world where hatred and violence become its most brutal symbols. But the future is represented by the circle. And maybe that's the reason why Jewish tradition embraces, when it comes to celebration, a dance form that's distinguished by being circular, the hora, where we come together and hold each other when we mark holidays, weddings, b'nai mitzvah, symbols, all of them of the future that we reenact through historical memory, through ritual, and through the celebrations of life moving forward. And we know even in pain, circles of compassion and circles of love become the signals of a redeemed future, of the potential and the promise of a better tomorrow. If you divide death by life, you'll find a circle. When we form ourselves into a circle, no one can take over the center, privileging themselves over anyone else. A circle reminds us of our shared humanity, of our shared fate, but better of our shared destiny. Rabbi Nachman told of a parable of a person who was standing on the side of a circle of dancers, someone who was too sad, too frightened, too filled with despair to join. And someone from the circle grabs her hand and pulls her into the circle. And as she dances, she looks over her, so her shoulder and she sees her sadness and she sees her fear and she sees her despair looking on wistfully, longingly, also a little resentfully, maybe even disapprovingly. And our task, Rabbi Nachman teaches through this parable, is that as we dance, as we come together in these circles of life and of love, alone and together, that we have to learn how to bring our sadness and our despair and our fear into the circle with us and to figure out how to transform it into joy and into hope and into possibility. In this gathering, we coming together as we do each week, we form a circle of connection. We form a circle of compassion, a circle of commitment. We hold one another's hands making room for one another's pain, one another's sadness and despair, supporting one another. We together embody the shape of a more promising future. We become the circle. If you divide death by life, you will find a circle.
Thank you, Don. So the name Peter Geffen is familiar to many of us, a longtime civil rights activist, founder of Kivunim, extraordinary gap year program, taking young adults all over the world, look at the world through Jewish eyes, founder of the Abraham Joshua Heschel School in New York City, where I'm honored to sit on the Board of Trustees together with Peter and a friend to many of us. Peter tells a story he wrote about recently of how on the 9th of April in 1968, he and Mickey Shore, two civil rights workers then in their early 20s, were marching through the streets of Atlanta behind the coffin of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Earlier that morning, they had been assigned to bring one of the mules for the mule train it carried Dr. King's body from Ebenezer Baptist Church to Morehouse College and to his first burial site. They were walking alongside their teacher, Rabbi Heschel, and the then presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy. And they were stunned by Dr. King's assassination and terrified about what it would mean for the future. So Peter turned to Rabbi Heschel and he asked, what are we going to do now? Rabbi Heschel kept walking and then looked back and said to Peter, you must teach the children. You must teach them a Judaism that can remake the world. You must teach the children. I want to offer now a prayer 
titled Ve'ahavta, and you shall love, which is taken from the first word of the first paragraph of the Shema, which is all about teaching the children. This is a prayer, a poem, written by the Jewish poet and writer Aurora Levins Morales of Puerto Rican descent. These words are finding their way into so many communities' prayers now, as you'll soon hear why. This is her poem, Ve'ahavta. Say these words when you lie down and when you rise up, when you go out and when you return, in times of mourning and in times of joy. Inscribe them on your doorposts, embroider them on your garments, tattoo them on your shoulders. Teach them to your children, your neighbors, your enemies. Recite them in your sleep, here in the cruel shadow of empire. Another world is possible. Thus spoke the prophet, Roka Dalton. Altogether they have more death than we, but altogether we have more life than they. There is more bloody death in their hands than we could ever wield unless we lay down our souls to become them, and then we will lose everything. So instead, imagine winning. This is your sacred task. This is your power. Imagine every detail of winning. The exact smell of the summer streets in which no one has been shot. The muscles you have never unclenched from worry, gone soft as newborn skin. The sparkling taste of food when we know that no one on earth is hungry. That the beggars are fed. That the old man under the bridge and the woman wrapping herself in thin sheets in the back seat of a car and the children who suck on stones, nest under a flock of roofs that keep multiplying their shelter. Lean with all your being towards that day when the poor of the world shake down a rain of good fortune out of the heavy clouds and justice rolls down like waters. Defend the world in which we win as if it were your child. It is your child. Defend it as if it were your lover. It is your lover. When you inhale and when you exhale, breathe the possibility of another world into the 37.2 trillion cells of your body until it shines with hope. And then imagine more. Imagine rape is unimaginable. Imagine war is a scarcely credible rumor that the crimes of our age, the grotesque inhumanities of greed, the sheer and astounding shamelessness of it, the vast fortunes made by stealing lives, the horrible normalcy it came to have is unimaginable to our heirs, the generations of the free. Don't waver. Don't let despair sink its sharp teeth into the throat with which you sing. Escalate your dreams. Make them burn so fiercely that you can follow them down any dark alleyway of history and not lose your way. Make them burn clear as a starry drinking gourd over the grim fog of exhaustion and keep walking. Hold hands, share water, keep imagining so that we and the children of our children's children may live. Ah, 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 ah,
Change is going to come. Can you hear it's on? May it be so. Amen. Before we close with our last, um, with our last words and last musical offering, I want to remind everyone that we'll be here again next week, 8.30 p.m. with our guest, Kari Lazar-White from Brotherhood Sister Soul in Harlem. Very much looking forward um, to, to learning from Kari. And um, also want to let everybody know that um, while tomorrow night is my final class of jurisprudence being offered on the BJ platform, I invite everyone to keep learning uh, with me, uh, continuing the following week on the 17th of June, jurisprudence will be continuing through the, 20, the 15th of July. Uh, we invite you to learn on the Shire platform, um, welcome you with no tuition um, as a way of uh, wanting to extend a warm embrace to all of you. Um, the program will pick up again in the fall, um, at which point we will, uh, we will launch with a tuition-based 
um, learning opportunity. This program as well, Don and I will continue to be here every Tuesday night through this easy way of logging on through Zoom or Facebook Live, also through July 14th. Um, and then the hope will be to pick up again um, after a short break. Dunn reminded us that change is going to come, reminded us also that we have to be not just the agents of change, we also have to be through the way we come together, the circles that we build together, we have to be those who create the space for change, for change to dwell not only around us, but deep within us. I invite you all to extend that embrace towards one another and to allow us together to become that circle, that, that place where we can hold that promise of change and from which it can emit its light and its hope throughout the world. Tov, everyone. Good night. Stay safe. Stay strong. Loves you all.